All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast, which was formerly Theology Doesn't Suck. This is the second time we're going with our new name, Rethinking Faith. And for those of you who have not heard about this and are interested, uh, go ahead and check out our episode from last week. Marty and I took a kind of a deep dive into why we decided to change the name and uh, talked about some of the ramifications there. So that's what's going on. Still the same great podcast. Well, great to me, but I'm a bit biased. Uh, <laughs> just a new name. So again, I'm Josh Patterson. Uh, unfortunately, Marty is not with me right now, not with me today. So, which is good because now I can talk poorly about him, and he can't, you know, talk back. He can't defend himself. Um, I can't really think of anything negative to say about him right now, except that he likes a stupid hockey team. Um, so we'll go with that. And he likes the Chicago Bears, and that's just ridiculous. So. Anyway, we'll move on. A fun, fun, exciting thing that I was excited about real quick before we, we do jump in because I am joined by somebody today and I don't want to leave them sitting wondering like, why is this dude talking to himself? Uh, but I here's a reason I'm cooler than Marty. I started ice hockey yesterday so and I didn't die. My wife came to watch to make like to see basically to see me fail and cheer for me to fail and I didn't. And so that's pretty cool. <laughs> so I started the ice, ice hockey season yesterday for the first time ever. I'm super excited about that. And I'm sure you guys will hear more about that as time goes on. But for the time being, we'll push all that stuff to the side. And I have somebody I'd like to introduce you guys to. His name is Matthew Cortman. Hopefully I said his name correctly. Sweet. He's giving me a thumbs up. So how's it going, Matthew? It's going great. Thanks so much for inviting me onto the podcast today. Yeah, absolutely, man. Now, would you prefer Matthew or Matt? As I tell every single person who asks me that, it's honestly your preference. The Sweet. book says Matthew, but it lots does. of people call me Matt, and either one I am not partial to. Sweet. Uh, so the reason I ask is because I my full name is Joshua, but I only get Joshua like if I'm in trouble. You know, like growing up, if my mom said Joshua, I was like, oh, crap, now I'm in trouble. But if it's just Josh, then it's pretty good. But uh, 
Well, as so, long as everyone knows that my name is is Matthew Cortman, so Matthew full length, right? That's the professional, right? But we're sure. we're friends. We're, we're we're having a conversation, and everyone listening is having a conversation with us. So we can you can just call me Matt, and we can all pretend that we're all in a living room and just chilling and relaxing. That sounds good to me, man. That's I mean I am kind of relaxing right now. Hopefully this isn't uh, bad to you, but I do have a beer over here to my left that I was keeping off screen. Um, because I'm relaxing, so. <laughs> you do you, brother. <laughs> right on. Sweet, awesome. So we do have a question. Before we jump in, we have a question that we ask everybody that comes on, and it's a pretty big deal. It's like a make or break kind of question. If you get it wrong, then, like, we just shut down the interview. And oh, no. we put the, put the episode out uh, anyway, and then you just look stupid. So hopefully oh, you do no. a good job. Okay. All right, ready All right, for I'm this? nervous. All, All right, right. I'm, I'm trying. All right, so what is your favorite hockey team? <laughs> oh, yeah, I am gonna, I am gonna sound stupid with this. Um, well, uh, here, here it goes. I don't have a it. Uh, well, wait, my childhood self is coming back. I'll say something. Ducks. Anaheim. Are you close to Anaheim? I don't know. There was some Disney movie, right? Ah, uh, the Mighty Ducks. Was yes. The Mighty Ducks. Yeah, that's the only hockey team name I think I know. And Sweet. it's coming to my head like 10 plus years after I saw that film. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> Right on. <laughs> Man, I've not thought of that since now. But um, yeah, so otherwise I really don't have a clue what hockey team. Uh, unfortunately, hockey is something I've, I have gone to a hockey game when I was younger. Um, but I don't honestly follow it very well. I probably... I mean, I love I love the sport itself in sort of a generic way sometimes, but okay. like I don't love it enough to really like get into each team. So for me, like I could tell you, I love playing soccer and I love soccer, but oh, I don't sweet. actually watch teams. So I really couldn't tell you, like, oh yes, this team is really appealing to me and this team sucks. And I'd just be like, well, when I watch them play the game, I'll tell you which one sucks and which one's good. <laughs> right on. Sweet. That's fair, man. I grew up uh, playing soccer as well. Um, and kind of similar to, like, I was never super into watching it on TV. I just liked playing. But the I think you're the first person to ever answer the Mighty Ducks, as in the, the team from the Disney movie, which is really cool. And that's fair. So we'll, we'll give you that. But I can help oh, you. Oh, thank goodness. Where, so you're, you're located in, in California. Is that true? No, 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 I was. Okay. I was located you once was upon a time. You was located. All right. Um, Where are you living now? No. I am currently in New Haven, Connecticut, where I am studying at Yale University doing my master's degree, which hopefully I will be finished with by this May. Nice. Sweet. Well, now I'm going to embarrass myself because I don't know geography, but I'm going to find what hockey team is closest to Connecticut and... We're going to name that your official team is closest to, but my, I would, I would prefer to root for my home team. Okay. So you want to, okay. So, all right, well, here's my geography is really bad. So I'll tell you the three California teams and then you can say which one is closest to you. So you have the Anaheim Ducks, the San Jose Sharks, and you have the LA Kings. Are the Kings closest to San Diego? I don't. I don't know. I. I can't tell. L. A. is such a generic term. Like it refers okay. to like such a swath of land. Like <laughs> I mean, Anaheim is technically considered part of L. A. County. So I don't. Okay. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Right. Between ducks and kings, you know, where can you go wrong? Sure. Yeah. Well, you can just pick one, or you can just say, "I don't have to decide," and be a Washington Capitals fan because that's Jesus's favorite team, um, and that has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a Washington Capitals fan. That's just purely, like, empirically verifiable. I think it's in my best interest to go with whatever <laughs> you say. <laughs> Sweet. All right, man. Well, thanks for for playing along with our our stupid little game. Uh, but so, if you could, could you just uh, kind of tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, I'm 28 years old. I'm a master student at Yale Divinity School. So you're and really smart. I have <laughs> uh, PhD applications that have gone out this season. So we'll find out where I'll be in the fall. Nice. And. Uh, Basically, I'm a big Bible nerd, a big theology nerd. I love talking about God and about the cosmos and what is the meaning of life. Um, I did, I'm also very nerdy in the sense that I did four degrees in undergrad uh, studying. <laughs> and I mean separate degrees, not majors. They, they, they were counted as actual separate degrees. So I have wow. three bachelors in religious studies, archaeology, and philosophy, as well as a Bachelor of Fine Arts in film and television screenwriting, uh, just because I like to keep it fresh and, and do something that wasn't <laughs> academic. Um, nice. And so uh, for my master's, I'm a lot more disciplined, just religion, uh, focusing on the history of the Bible between um, the end of what is typically in the Protestant Old Testament, like uh, Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, and um, what begins with the Gospels. So basically the period of time in which uh, the Apocrypha was written, the Pseudepigrapha, all those lost books of the Bible that everybody loves to make documentaries about, yeah. that's what fascinated <laughs> me as a teenager, and it still fascinates me, and I own about every single one that we have, and I'm always annoyed at how much more there still is to keep reading. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of all things... Um, not traditional, and okay. I say that because, in truth, much of what we think is not traditional today was traditional a long time ago. Oh, absolutely. So it's always fun to rediscover a lot of traditions that have been forgotten, uh, books that used to be included in Bibles uh, for hundreds of years before they were removed. Now they're not traditional, but at one point in time, somebody grew up, and it was just the norm in their community that the Shepherd of Hermas was at the end of their Bible. Um, <laughs> and so stuff like that is really fun for me because it pokes at all these questions about what is tradition and what is, you know, what is the basis for our faith. Uh, and of course, that also leads to another point about me. I am a committed Christian. Um, I believe very deeply in what I do. I don't believe uncritically in what yeah. I do. Yeah. Um, Clearly, I've spent a long time in academia, but I've spent a long time also in church life and in uh, traditional, very, very conservative, near-borderline fundamentalist communities. I've seen the spectrum from left to right. Um, none of it is usually all that pretty, and we all fall into very similar tropes and stereotypes. And um, yeah, it's, it's very fun and interesting stuff. And so I've just deeply loved getting into it and exploring all that I can. And, um, you know, it's led me to do some fun stuff like this podcast with you. So it must be doing something right. <laughs> yeah, right on, man. That's awesome. That's uh, that's really cool. I mean, all the degrees, it's pretty impressive. Um, 
I wish I had stuff like that because we seem pretty similar. I do a ton of reading. I like reading things that are controversial, but really they're just things that a bunch of dead people said a long time ago <laughs> and hey. uh, a bunch of Christians grew up believing, but, oh, you can't say that now. Like, I mean, to be to be frank, the degrees are a lot less impressive than, you know, they actually sound like. People get wowed and go like, how did you have a life or, you know, meet your wife or any of those things. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, is that honestly, um, degrees are just kind of semi-meaningless certificates that they either mean a lot to you individually uh, or they don't. But in the end, you can get all the same education if you're an active enough reader, if you are actively enough learning, and you're actively disciplined enough to, you know, uh, hear critiques just as well as you would in a classroom. You're gonna do. You're gonna get the same amount of information. Sure. Um, you know, there is people love to idolize the idea of credentials, and all they are is just a formal way of saying what somebody who really how do I say it? It's like, you know, not everybody can have an expert in that field talk to you and tell you, oh, yeah, this person definitely knows what they're talking about. <laughs> sure. Right? But the degree is supposed to stand in the place of that person being there devout for you. <laughs> right. And yeah. it doesn't always mean everything you think it means. Sure. And that, of course, you know, honestly, it's like the degrees are fun and pretty. But at the end of the day, uh, what sucks about academia is that, you know, it doesn't really matter if you have a bachelor's degree. It's almost like a high school diploma. Sure. No one's going <laughs> to hire you with it. So it's just like, all right, you want the desk job at the nine to five. So, you know, I think honestly that I'd love to have a conversation about that sometime, just kind of the overblown nature of college degrees. Oh, so, sure. you know, just saying, I didn't mention those degrees uh, to say anything other than the fact that I'm really nerdy and I really <laughs> spend a lot of time on this stuff needlessly, but <laughs> not, to, not to praise me as much as to almost pity me. Yeah, right on. <laughs> Great, man. Well, uh, so tell us a little bit too, like, because you mentioned um, a little bit about your faith journey, but can you just kind of tell us like uh, what that has looked like? Um, you know, growing up, did you ever have a, a, a point in faith when maybe because, uh, you know, you start questioning things and then you step away or, or maybe that didn't happen to you. Like, what, what kind of uh, uh, journey have you had thus far? Yeah, definitely. I had something like that um, when I was around 18 years old. Um, I was graduating from uh, high school. I was homeschooled at that time. And uh, I was pretty much within a, a fairly fundamentalist-leaning sort of community at my church and people around me. My family was influenced highly by those elements. So, you know, when I say fundamentalist, I mean like the conspiracy-oriented Illuminati, you know, uh, end of time kind of scenarios that people are, get wrapped up into. Um, because I was Seventh-day Adventist, the kinds of conspiracies and sorts of of models of the end of time were not the left behind. No, those were the crazy people. But you know, the, <laughs> okay. uh, but but the people who were feeding, you know, our circles were at the same time probably not any less crazy. They just had alternative models that were different than the Lahays and so forth. Interesting. Um, so you know, it's it's always interesting. Every community has their own sort of conspiratorial set. I remember uh, when I was in. Uh, you're making me remember stuff. That's dangerous. Because um, <laughs> it's like, oh, I wasn't planning on mentioning this. I remember one time I was in Jordan 
uh, for an archaeological dig. And I thought it was so funny that when I was inside of a supermarket, the guy who ran the supermarket, obviously Muslim, he um, started talking about this crazy conspiracy that sounded just like the Illuminati, right? The whole basis, like they control everything, the media, the blah, right? The whole thing, except that, as I recall, he thought that it was some, he thought it was some crazy Muslim extremist group that was like (laughs) controlling the world and and secretly leading to the like chaos and and but it was like the whole scenario and I just couldn't stop laughing as I left the store because he was so passionately trying to tell me about Muhammad and why I needed to understand the conspiracy and why you know my salvation and fate depended on my knowledge about (laughs) and I was like ma'am I just heard an alternative version of something that I thought was unique Right, right. To the evangelical like communities of the world. No, in fact, every community has something like this eventually because it's a human phenomenon. We're yeah, all it's super prone. So yeah, basically, um, I was in that sort of a community. I didn't know anything about scholarship. I thought televangelists were, you know, the scholars of the world. Um, and you know, I just assumed, right, if you were a pastor, you were a Bible scholar and maybe actually that was a pretty good (laughs) assumption of what should be the case. If you were going to go out there and teach this stuff, if you're going to make claims about it, you probably did actually, or could claim you had some authority on the issue intellectually. And so that was my assumption. And then, you know, I went ahead and stumbled across Bart Ehrman's uh, book misquoting Jesus, mm. uh, who changed the Bible and why, and that subtitle just grabbed me. Uh, who changed the Bible and why? Well, I mean, I'd seen <laughs> I'd seen History Channel documentaries and Lost Books of the Bible specials and all that stuff, but there was this was a book that was claiming that manuscripts of the Bible had been changed. And what was amazing to me at the time was that I had never thought about how the Bible was actually preserved or copied. I just sort of assumed it was, and I never gave thought to the process. So mm. that was really the beginning of my deconstruction journey. Okay. Because kind of by the end of the book, I suddenly realized that there was this whole other world of scholarship that uh, the televangelists I had listened to had not been really Either they were deceitful or they just were ignorant. But in either case, it wasn't very helpful for me. So that really kind of um, started me on this realization of, oh, no, you know, I don't want to be deceived. Like, <laughs> I've always known I don't want to be deceived, but suddenly I realized I am. I, yeah. I've been trusting the wrong resources. I, I don't – I put faith into people that apparently were not the people I should have been really putting that faith in. Um but really what was what was very unique and helpful for me at that time in my journey was that um, when my mom had raised me, she had made, um, I don't know if it was a conscious decision or it just sort of flowed out of her own faith experience, but she raised me never to kind of think about doctrines as connected to uh, my relationship with God. Mm. She wasn't actively telling me not to. To, but the way she raised me is that in in one sense there was this compartment with like doctrinal issues and like end of time scenarios and then there was like oh your relationship with god and spirituality and your heart and so i never really associated bible with relationship mm, like there was okay. relationship and spirituality on the one hand which was helped by the bible 
but I never associate it as parallel, like, no, you can only have a relationship through your understanding of the Bible, which is, I think, what many evangelicals end up getting mixed together. Absolutely. So that when the deconstruction starts to happen, not only is the Bible being deconstructed and your knowledge and your doctrines, but also you feel like your relationship is being deconstructed because of what you had based it on. Kind of like the story Jesus tells of a house built on sand or built on rock. Yeah. So because um, my castle, so to speak, of faith had not been built on the Bible itself, um, and I had always viewed a relationship with God as something that was kind of in my heart and something I could sense with God, it really helped because as the Bible got deconstructed, my faith didn't actually get affected at a, at a visceral level. It was simply, uh, I was learning, oh, all the facts that I was using to feed my faith were wrong. Oh, okay, well, I just need to go ahead and find out what the reality was. So it didn't scare me. And in that sense, that's kind of a different uh, deconstructive journey than some people have experienced because they didn't have that anchor suddenly tearing everything down. Um, so yeah, ever since that period, um, really discovering scholarship and wanting to know more about how, I guess how you'd say it is in my head, I never thought to myself, oh no, God doesn't work the way that I thought he did, and so now I can't see how he can work. It was more like, oh, cool, God doesn't work the way I thought he did. I guess whatever way it is working is the way God's working. <laughs> so, you know, topics like, oh, multiple authorship of the Bible, you know, oh, did you know this single book is actually a compilation of different writers? Some people go, oh my goodness, that's crazy. God only works through one person getting inspired. And for me, it was like, well, if this is actually the case, then I guess God works this way. That's cool. I want to find out why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was always delving deeper into trying to figure out, like, I was never interested in fighting the question of, is scholarship right about this or that? It was more like, okay, well, if that is the case, then what does that say about God? Like, what is mm. the what is the theology that I start to realize if this is the way God's working? And... I'm not saying that I wholeheartedly just take everything scholarship says and agree with it. As sure. a scholar, there's a lot of stuff you can disagree with and different theories and, and all these things. You, you do have a role in it. But it definitely, um, it definitely made my priorities focused on really trying to see where God was in what other people thought of as chaos and trying to figure out, you know, well, what is the design? What is... What is the theological beauty in what people describe? Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen how this kind of goes down on the idea of third Isaiah. And I had this very conservative student friend of mine, an undergrad, who, um, you know, was, I mean, he was fundamentalist, straight up fundamentalist, okay. but he'd never heard the concept of, of three Isaiahs. He'd never heard of it before. So he heard my sermon. And he said, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I like this. This is so cool. Because I had presented it positively. Yeah. I, I didn't give a hint that there was a negative. I didn't even give the potential that there was. So, I mean, the way conservatives would do it is like, you only want three Isaiahs because it takes away Bible prophecy and you're trying to make blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right. But if 
I took that all out and I made this positive vision of like what this did to reveal Jesus and how mm, the author mm-hmm. of Isaiah is very linked with, you know, the message that Jesus gave. Well, and the fundamentalist guy, a student was just like raving about it. it shocked me so much, but it made <laughs> me realize that a lot of times the problems we have with each other isn't really rooted in the actual issues or the actual facts. They're more rooted in propaganda how have i been sold these facts or what is what is the feelings i have associated with them so for many evangelicals scholarship has been associated with taking away taking away and you know the people who are hyping up that propaganda are certainly not trying to say oh but this is what the scholarship says they're giving you right and Mm -hmm. what you're getting might actually be a lot better than what you think you're getting away from. So oftentimes with scholarship, you find out that there's a really better vision of God that appears uh, from what you start realizing is there versus the, oh, wouldn't it have been cool if this one verse really was written 150 years prior, right? (laughs) You know, at at some point, you got to trade off and say, well, you know, which is deeper theologically to hold on to? Um, and sometimes, you know, it usually, or should I say, should fall on the question of what presents God in better, in a much better light than he has been. Because honestly, if we have to choose between uh, a better vision of God and Christ versus a single Bible prophecy being provable, I'm going to choose God and Christ. Like, Absolutely, straight up. Because the effect of that on the world is so much greater than any, you know, Cyrus prophecy that you can quote in a couple of verses at the end of the day, either one would be amazing. But you know, if it comes down to it, which one is giving the greater theological riches to the church? Mm, sure. No, that's really great, man. That's cool. And so I think, um, just a quick uh, side note, and then we're going to jump into your book here. Um, I know cause like your, so your journey is kind of like different in that, um, like some people would have found Ehrman's book and it would have destroyed them. And you alluded to this, like you were just talking about it. Um, but for you, it, that didn't happen. It kind of like ignited things for you. My, my like deconstruction is also kind of weird because the person that I read that started my deconstruction is not somebody associated with that language. And he is my favorite, uh, biblical scholar and theologian. I'm sure you know who he is. His name's N.T. Wright. And I read his book, Surprised by Hope, and that is what sparked my deconstruction uh, because I realized that, wait a minute, the story of the Bible is way greater than this shit that I've been fed since I was, you know, however, you know, years old, grown up in like a super conservative Southern Baptist church. Um, Anyway, that's beside the point. (laughs) No, but honestly, I know a lot of people for whom N.T. Wright was a deconstruction uh, starter. Because I think a lot of, uh, for, you know, a lot of super conservatives, N.T. Wright is very liberal, right? Like, we, you know, you don't, when you compare N.T. Wright to David Hart, I don't know, maybe, you know, N.T. Wright looks the conservative. But if you compare N.T. Wright to, you know, Piper... (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> N.T. Wright is his enemy, you know. Yeah, so who Piper made a mistake trying to pick a fight with N.T. Wright? By the way, completely out of his league. <laughs> I think everybody's out of Piper. I mean, I think Piper's out of everybody's league. That's the, <laughs> that's the problem when you actually start looking at some of the stuff he says and sure. and thinks. You're like, man, it's not that it's hard to debate with you. It's that you just won't debate anybody. Right. <laughs> There's no point to debate because sure. they're wrong. 
Sure. Sure. Sweet. All right, man. Well, so you wrote a book. Um, it's your, your first book. Uh, I love the name, by the way. It's called Saying No to God, A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully. Oh, excuse me. And you have all sorts of really great um, endorsements. I mean, Peter Rollins, who is a dude that I absolutely love. I mean, Thomas J. Ord, an author that's been on the show before. Brad Jersak, he's also been on the show. Um, so some really great people are saying some really great stuff about this book. And I really enjoyed reading it. Um, I had the privilege of having like a, a advanced PDF copy that you sent me. So thank you for that. Um, and I was sure to also pick up a, a hard uh, copy as well. Um, so that's super cool. But I guess the first question uh, I would want to ask you is like, why did you write this book and who were you writing it for? Sure. Um, well, I mean, it's kind of on the front cover to answer the second question. Sure. Peter Rollins kind of already hints at who it's written for. Right. Uh, his his endorsement was that this was a book that would uh, move us away from both progressive and conservative Christianity. Yeah. Um, so that kind of gives it away. The book is aimed at both progressives and conservatives, uh, perhaps a little bit more towards conservatives in some sense, like in a direct manner, in the sense that the issues that the book addresses affect more the conservative kind of individual. But uh, progressives are no less affected by it. Sure. So then now to answer the first question, it's okay, well, what is it that they're getting <laughs> affected by? And what does this really mean? And what was the goal? And what was the purpose? And where are you headed? Um, the book is really trying to tackle how do we understand authority? How do we understand um, God's authority? And within that, how do we understand God's relationship with authority to us as human beings in his image? Mm -hmm. So to get even more, you know, down to earth, the bigger question is, does any human being have the right to say no to God if they believe that God is acting in a way that is contrary to how they believe God should act. Sure. Right? And now the evangelical answer to that has always been no. <laughs> <laughs> right. You can hear Piper now from his pulpit. Absolutely not. I would actually be honored if Piper would try to ridicule my book someday from his pulpit. But the point <laughs> is... I'll send him a copy. <laughs> you wouldn't touch it. <laughs> um he, the thing is, is like from that perspective, right? And it's not, and this is the funny thing. It's not like it's a Piper thing. Right. It's a everything. Yeah. When I first went ahead and pitched this book to the most liberal, progressive Christian publisher in America, I'm not going to name names because it's not in good taste. But if, <laughs> if you know publishers who do this stuff, you can probably imagine exactly who I'm describing. And I pitched it. And I kid you not, the employees who were there um, listening to the pitch, they like just immediately, from the title, were like, why on earth would I ever tell God no? <laughs> right? Like, I was shocked that it, at, at, at this extent of liberalism, it really is so ingrained in us, this idea that if God really did say it, then absolutely you must do it. So that... Um, Although divine command theory, this idea that what is good is whatever God commands, although it's primarily talked about in a you know conservative sort of um, yeah, perspective, the truth of the matter is is that progressives uh, really agree with it. 
I mean, if you think about the debates we've been having about inspiration between progressives and conservatives, the real debate is simply this. We both agree that if God said it, that does it. But we just disagree as to whether or not we know that God said it. Right. <laughs> right? That's really what these stupid debates have been going on back and forth. When you think of like the John Dominic Crossens, the Marcus Borgs, etc. And then you look at the others on the other side of the spectrum. It really is that everybody seems to, even if they don't say it, they're working from the assumption that if God suddenly appeared, right, then you could, then you'd have to deal with his exact words. But you're just debating, oh, I don't think the manuscripts really have God's exact words, you know. So almost everybody seems to agree on verbal inspiration. Almost everybody seems to agree that whatever God's exact words are, are the exact rule and authority and everything. And the real debate is simply, oh, well, do we have them or not? And sure. so the evangelicals are saying, yes, we got it in this Bible. And the progressives are going, no, the Bible's human, so it's not that way. What my book kind of does is it says, screw all that. <laughs> the whole debate is an endless circle which only serves to benefit both sides to whatever they want sure uh the reality my book argues is that actually bible a verbal inspiration so that essentially what the bible really ends up teaching is that god would want you to say no to him even if he really did say something and that something contradicted what was good. Mm. So that basically, my book argues, yes, you should reject God under certain conditions. Sure. Now that, as I was told on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast with Matt DiStefano <laughs> uh, and Keith Dott, you know, Matt was like, I think that's the most heretical statement that we've had on the show, you know, because you're outright saying you should reject God as a Christian, if God does something that appears to be immoral. Sure. Now, to understand that, I'm not making that claim as a theologian. I'm reporting that claim as somebody who reads the Bible. Sure. Because it's the Bible itself, you know, to use conservative language, <laughs> you know, it, it's the Bible itself, the Word of God, that's telling you these things. Um, and, and really it does. There are stories in the Bible that spell this out. The best one I always cite is uh, in Exodus 32 with Moses, where God is angry at the Israelites because they've gone ahead and built their idol and um, the golden calf. And God gets so angry, he tells Moses, you know what, screw it all. I hate the fact that I even did the Exodus. All of this is worthless. Um, I'm going to destroy every woman, child, man, every... I'm killing them all. I'm just straight up genocide of the Hebrew people. Long before Hitler, God was like, I'm going to outdo him before he even gets started. I'm just going to go and wipe them all out. Um, and Moses goes, absolutely not. No, you can't do this. This is wrong. Uh, and he even says, it, it's evil. What you're planning to do would be called evil. Mm -hmm. And if you do this, no one will ever trust you again. And you'll break the promises you gave to people. And then, you know, the way that the evangelical mind would think about this, if God tells you this is his divine ordained plan, you don't argue with it. Sure. Right? This is the same argument when people say, I don't like Joshua's book. Would God really have killed the Canaanites? Would God have really done these terrible things? What is it that the pipers of the world will respond? They will say, uh, no, actually, um, 
you know, you don't have the right to judge what God did back then because he's God and he can do anything he wants, right? If that's right. true for us feeling bad about reports, right? How much <laughs> more true is this supposed to be for Moses as he's facing God in person? And what actually ends up happening is that God tells Moses he's right hmm. and he doesn't do the evil that he planned. Which, by the way, the narrator of Exodus then also echoes the fact that it was evil. Yeah. Um, and so what's fascinating about the story is that Moses acts in a way that is totally contrary to how conservatives or even progressives understand what you would really do with the living God in front of you. Um, when you really know 100%, no doubts, this is actually God. Like, the no question marks, he's really talking to me. And Moses has the gumption to say, absolutely not. What you're saying is evil. It's Hitler. Mm. It's not going to happen. It can't happen. Don't do it. And that's really great. Now, what people usually get lost on is the question of, how could God have even suggested it? Or what, why did God change his mind after he already said what he was going to do? The really interesting question is what my book seeks to get. Why in the hell did Moses think that he could do <laughs> what he was doing with God, right? You, those two other questions are like interesting theological things. But you know what? You, it has no effect on us, right? Yeah. Whatever we think about in regards to why God changed his mind, it ain't going to change how we're worshiping or reading. And whatever we think about how uh, God could have possibly gone ahead and thought these things, it's still not going to answer the question of how we live in our faith ourselves. It might worry us and cause these other issues. But really, it's the question, well, Moses is like us. Moses is human. Moses is in direct conversation with God, and he does something that would be considered a universal no-no. Like, he put his reasoning, his logic, ahead of what God was commanding him, and he won. Right? Hmm. He, he came out as the one who had the better vision. Yeah. Now, that, that can just stun people. Just sure. stun them. And so when I... Um, when I tell that story, you know, people are very uncomfortable. They're like, well, that, are you sure that that's what it's saying and, and why? And, and it's not the only time. That's where it gets weirder. It's not like this is just a weird story in the Bible. It's right. that the story motif appears again and again and again. Uh, you see it in Genesis 18, where Abraham is fighting God over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he tells God straight up in Genesis 18, he says, you know, um, far be it from you to do something like this. You know, is the God, will not the God uh, who is the judge of all of the justice, is not the, the judge going to judge justly? Are you mm -hmm. not going to do what is supposed to be done? Um, and it's fascinating because Abraham's invoking Psalm 82 where um, the job description of a god is said to be one who gives justice. And according to Psalm 82, if a god does not give justice, then that god is condemned and is not really a god. Mm -hmm. So when Abraham is pushing God about whether or not he's just, he's literally telling God, um, you, you may not be really God. Right, like how you answer this question, how you respond to the worries I have, may determine whether it was a mistake for me to follow you and and walk all this way, right? Like this is the line in the sand he draws. And again, what's fascinating is that God's reactions to Abraham is not, you know, to be like, "How dare you?" or "You're questioning my authority," but rather to work with Abraham and to recognize the legitimacy 
of the land, the line he's drawing in the sand to recognize that no, Abraham, you really are raising an issue that must be addressed, and I have to answer to. Um, you see this in Genesis 32, where Jacob is by the Javik River uh, late at night, and suddenly a man is said to have attacked him uh, with the intention of, I mean, presumably killing him or injuring him or harming him. It's not good. The man's attacked him, and and clearly Jacob understands the attack as a life-and-death scenario. And so Jacob has been faced with this threat that has attacked him. And by morning, the light starts to come up, and suddenly Jacob can tell that what is before him is either God or is an angel of God representing God. In either case, Jacob now realizes the thing that wants to hurt him is the divine. Um, and what's fascinating is, you know, again, evangelical logic, if God's will is to harm you, if that was the case, right, like, you, there, nothing could overcome that, nothing could stop that. If God decides to judge you, there's nothing you could do to prevent that. And yet, what does Jacob do? He keeps fighting. Noticing yeah. that the divine is in front of him does not make him stop fighting. In fact, if not more, he fights harder. And this really becomes... Uh, interesting because he he is winning the battle with this this angelic emissary and tells him I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me and then what he gets blessed with is one of the strangest and most controversial Bible verses in probably all of Scripture and that is where Jacob is told your name is Jacob no more you're going to be named uh, you know Israel and <laughs> it says now you have to know Israel means in the context of the story, it means those who fight God, or mm -hmm. one fights God. And um, then it says, you will be named Israel because you have fought God and you have won, or you have overcome, or you have defeated him. So what's fascinating about this is that Jacob fights God, Jacob wins, and Jacob gets blessed for winning with a name that basically says that the fate of Israel as a people is to continue to fight God and to win using mm -hmm. the basis of the story. So now that really has to rack your mind. This is like the total opposite theology of how everybody usually imagines the relationship with God. People imagine perfect uh, obedience, where whatever God says, you just do, you just you just go with the flow, God is the perfect almighty, and you're just this humble little piece of dirt who does whatever, right? And this is not the picture at all in these stories we have. We have humans going, you know, mano to mano with God, really telling him, hey, you know, I'm coming at you here and winning. Now, what my book tries to get into is how is this possible according to the biblical ideas themselves, what is really happening here? And what does this say about humans, but also what does this say about the divine? Why is the divine attacking Jacob? Why is acting, you know, on a Hitler-esque scale with Moses? Why is um, Abraham doubting God's justice? These are really important questions, both for how humans can respond to the divine, but how people... Uh, should understand how God relates to humans. And what I found the most intriguing is that in each one of these stories, 
the human does not believe God is the thing that <laughs> God is presenting himself as. Yeah. So when the case of, did you want to add something? No, no, I'm, I'm just super intrigued. Like I'm excited. So keep going. You're good. Yeah, okay. So, you know, it's like in the case of Moses, right? God is, we would think acting so out of character, like this is not God. This is like Satan. This is, this is the opposite of who he is. And what is it that Moses tells God? He says, I need you to show me your ways, right? Like, I know this is not your way. Mm-hmm. I need you to show me your ways. And then what ends up happening at the end of the uh, of chapter 34 is that God gives this big speech where he says, I'm going to show you my ways. And then he's like, I am ever merciful. I am always forgiving. I am always compassionate. I am always doing what's right. And you're like, wait a minute. This is the total opposite of, this is like everything Moses was saying and the opposite of what you were earlier saying. But this is the key, right? Before the event at Exodus 32, these are all the things that God was supposed to be. These are all the things God was said to be, right? So one thing you can notice is that Moses is not saying to God, I think these things are wrong and you need to stop doing these things and listen to me. What he's actually saying is, I know your ways. You taught me your ways. These are opposite of your ways. Now stop it and go back to being who you are. And then what ends up happening at the end is God's like, hey, guess what? I am all those things. Yeah. <laughs> right. So he's not like saying, oh, Moses, you were right. It's more like, Moses, thanks for defending who I've been all along. Mm-hmm. Right. Abraham's story, the same thing occurs in Genesis 18. You have Abraham telling God, you know, uh, far be it from you. Right. I know who you are, and this kind of activity you seem to be doing is very far from who you are, right? It's not saying, I, Abraham, am so smart, I have my own morality, and I've been able to figure out where... No, he's actually claiming that I am against you right now because of who you have always been before, right? Who you are now does not match who you have been, so I will defend who you have been against who you are now, because who you are now looks a lot less like the God I serve, and so there's a problem here. In the same way in Jacob's story, you have God coming as this threat. What is it that Jacob tells, uh, you know, this angelic uh, being? He says, you know, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. A blessing is the opposite of the curse that this man <laughs> has come to bring him. Yeah. So in one sense, it's as if Jacob is saying, you know, I don't believe that you have come here to give me a curse. I won't let you go until you prove to me that you're going to give me a blessing. And then when you see it that way, now suddenly you understand why it makes sense for uh, Jacob to be blessed with such a strange name, Israel, the one who fights God and wins. Because what you're winning is a defense of God in the midst of your fighting with him. Mm-hmm. You, are, you are winning the fight for a better image of God, a God who blesses, a God who's compassionate rather than vengeful, a God who is always looking for ways to save, in the case of Abraham, rather than to destroy. So in each of these cases, you have a story presented to yourself in which God is fought because God appears the opposite of who God is, and the human wins because they've successfully defended the right view of who God is. God is not darkness, God is light. Mm -hmm. God is not evil, God is good. So, now, in that sense, 
it's very interesting that in none of these stories is God actually really presumably changing, given that he's been constant as one thing, suddenly he appears as different, and then the human party calls him out on it, and then God goes right back to being who he is good. Now the question is, well, does it make sense that God's actually changing, or is something else going on here? And what's interesting is that um, in each of these stories, right, uh, especially Jacob's story, where you get the name Israel to mean that the people of God will continue to fight. It's like, well, if God was really changing, why is God suggesting they're going to need to keep fighting? And why is this something that's supposed to be a great thing and a blessing to be honored by? Well, it's something that a number of scholars uh, and theologians have actually talked about disparately over the centuries, including Martin Luther, John Calvin, um, Karl Barth, uh, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and, and what they all kind of understood and suggested is something that my book is suggesting, which is that God in these stories is depicted as sort of a teacher, um, in the sense that imagine you're in a classroom and everyone's kind of bored, right? And the teacher's worried that everybody's not really paying attention. So the teacher knows that just about 15 minutes ago, you know, she had gone ahead and said something about something. And she wonders whether or not they're listening anymore. So she decides to contradict the exact thing she said 15 minutes ago and see if anybody notices. <laughs> right? And if somebody puts a hand up in the air and says, but didn't you say before... She knows that they're listening and she's excited. If nobody notices, then she knows that they're not getting it and she's got to redo the whole class lecture again for the last 15 minutes. Sure. So that is what Martin Luther and others have suggested was occurring here in these stories. Is This is a great test to see whether or not uh, the human party, who in each of these cases is a huge hero of faith, right? Somebody who the Bible said had reached this uh, pinnacle of faithfulness, whether or not they really understood who God was, mm -hmm. or whether they were only following him just because of his authority. Now, this same theme is not just in the Old Testament. We get it in the New Testament as well in the Gospels with Jesus. Jesus himself does the same activity, um, and particularly acute is the story of the uh, Canaanite woman in the Gospel of Matthew, um, where Jesus has this woman calling out after him, and he's ignoring her. She's like, oh, please help me, please help me, and he's just ignoring her. And the disciples are like, Master, we don't understand. If you aren't going to help her, and she annoys us too, why aren't you sending <laughs> her away? Yeah. Why don't you get rid of her? Why are you just letting her keep calling? And he doesn't answer. And then eventually she breaks into the house and, you know, starts begging Jesus to heal her daughter. And he goes ahead and turns to her and says this extremely prejudicial, uh, you know, semi-racial statement that offends so many people. You know, why should I give uh, food that's meant for the children to the dogs? Basically, Jesus presents like a, a zero-sum game. Yeah. The miracle you want is, you know, food, and I was sent to give it to the children who deserve it. Why would I take the food from them and give it to you? Only they can have it or you can have it. It's not fair, don't you see, for me to be giving it to you when they require it first. And the woman kind of points out, you know, like, 
let's not even say that. If you're an evangelical, again, the idea is if God tells you his way of thinking, that must be the truth. Like, how many times do you hear pastors say that, you know, our own human reasoning is flawed? Our own (laughs) ability to understand the right and the wrong is incorrect. So if God tells us that this is the case, right, it's our own human... Well, guess what? The woman didn't get that message. She decides to fight back against Jesus, and she says, actually, you're wrong, Because don't you realize that crumbs actually fall from the table so the dogs still get it? (laughs) It's not a zero-sum game at all. Some of it does actually still end up going to the dogs. So everyone can win. So the basic point that she's making here is just, Jesus, you're wrong. Here's why. (laughs) And so now that your logic has been destroyed, I still want my miracle. And what's fascinating is how Jesus responds to this. He comes back at her and he says, wow, you have such great faith. And guess what? You're going to get what you wanted. (laughs) And she doesn't get what she wants, right? This is the key. Like People will be like, oh, look at her faith. What was her faith? Her faith was that she fought God. It wasn't anything she trusted, believed, uh, you know, insists. It's that she rejected God what seemed like an outright no and used that to still make a claim for what was right with a big yes. And God, in the end, gives exactly what she wanted. Now, here's the hint in Matthew, is that why was he ignoring her as she called it? Like, the disciples knew something was was wrong with this. Why aren't you sending her away? This is, this is not making sense. You should have just let her go if you're not going to help her. So what this suggests is again, this kind of a pedagogical game that's being played here, that God is acting like a, provo- a provocateur. He's provoking his his followers who have great faith to see whether or not they really will just bow down and go, all right, well, if you say it, so be it. Or whether they'll understand that, no, you're not bad, you're good. So if what you're suggesting is bad, I know to fight back and keep insisting on what's good. Yeah. So this idea is really the key for what my book tries to undo uh, in, you know, our current discussions of inspiration and reading scripture. It's being able to say, hey, what is it that God's really after? Is God after uh, mere obedience and, you know, capitulation and just saying, all right, whatever you want, that's what I'll do? Or is God interested in people who come to know his heart so well that when they see the opposite of his heart, they always reject it. Even in the case of, you know, um, even in the case of God himself testing you, right? God himself saying something that only Satan would say, would you recognize the difference? Or are you so married to the idea of authority that you can swap the images of Satan and God and you'd still do whatever they said because, well, it's coming from the place of authority, God. Uh, Peter Rollins kind of points out something like this in a parable he talks about where like you come on judgment day and you see Lucifer sitting on the, the great throne and he says, well, I actually overthrew Jesus. He's in hell now and I'm God. But don't worry, I'll honor all the previous uh, all the previous rewards and punishments that Jesus gave before. So uh, you just have to bow before me and I'll give you everything just like, you know, uh, was promised. Um and, of course, what he's doing is he's just reversing the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness mm-hmm. and presenting it to disciples of Jesus in heaven. 
And the key is to understand that, you know, would somebody still just bow down and be like, oh, well, if Lucifer sits on the throne of God, well, he's God now, right? It's like, well, what are you worshiping? Are you really worshiping the authority of God or are you worshiping the heart of God? If you're worshiping (laughs) the heart of God, then that means you have to say no to certain things, even if God would do them. You have to know God's heart good enough to know what good is, right? Enough to know that if something is bad, right, there's a reason I would reject it. And no matter where it came from, no matter what authority said it, it would still be bad, and that's why I'm not doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really good, man. That's... No, it's so... It's crazy, too, because it's, it's almost like this... Uh... Like the the cost benefit analysis, I guess often this comes up in like um, things like process thought or uh, like someone we were talking about before the show who um, endorsed your book, Thomas J. Ord, uh, talks about there are things that God simply can't do because of his nature being love. And people say, oh, well, you're taking power away from God. Like we seem to have this uh, like idolatry of just power, like pure power and authority when rather maybe God is not quite like that and are we okay with that um i don't know does that does that make any sense as as to what you're 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 getting at no i definitely think that ord is really on to something in terms of orienting the conversation to the issue of the character and heart of god what god's being is as love and understanding the limitations that that includes right like we cannot say Right, without being incomprehensible, that God is both love and God can do anything. Right. Right. <laughs> now, I mean, like within reason, right? Because if we say God is love, right, and we say God can do anything, we have to be very clear. If God does something unloving, yes, we're right. He can do anything, but all we're saying is God can stop being who he is. It doesn't mean God is still love and God does this other thing unloving. It would mean that if God does these other things that are unloving, God has actually changed. God yeah, has God's actually become himself. unloving, sure. right? Sure. So in that case, right, you, you have to figure out, okay, so what am I really, what is the key to the discussion here? What is the key to the heart of God? Is it the fact that God can do anything and that he has free choice? Or are we saying that the key is that God is love? If God is love, we're saying that his heart is unchanging it's going to insist on being loving. And that means he's not going to do unloving things. That sure. means that he's limited uh, by what God's character is, just in the same way a hero can't be a villain at the same time. right? You, 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 and if he is, he's not really a hero. All that is doing then in the story is just to tell you that this is a, a gray person. This is an individual who's... right. It, it's, you can't ever be one and the other if both are contradictions. It just yeah. becomes incomprehensible. Right. So I think Ord is right and, and pinpointing at something important that we have far too long not really focused hard on, which is, well, what are we claiming about God and how can we really understand that if God is going right, we can't also claim he's going left? And if he, if we see things that suggest that it's going left, how do we make sense of that? And what I argue in my book, certainly in the second half, is that you have to start making choices. Moses could not both claim that your decision to kill everybody and not killing everybody are equally <laughs> possible. Right. He, he clearly made a choice that one was terrible and another was was better. 
And we, both in scripture and in theology, have to come to make these similar decisions, that there is a path then that is obviously better and a path that is obviously not. Sure. Uh, either eternal hell is definitely an idea that makes total sense with the trajectory of God, or it doesn't and fits with Satan. And if you, you can't really have both, or else what you're really asking for is a bipolar God, and yeah. such a bipolar God is only going to end up creating bipolar individuals who worship him, which is exactly what we see currently in our world, <laughs> right? People who talk out of two sides of their mouth because they have ideas that don't go together, yeah. and so what do you do about that? It creates way more problems. I'm not necessarily, though, just for the record, I have not read enough of Ord and process theology to have a firm belief uh, of where I stand with everything that's in it. Sure. I do think, however, that there is there is a healthy tension, potentially, between the idea of a God who actively is fighting and engaging and confronting individuals and some of Ord's ideas about a very passive... Uh, sort of, and forgive me, Ord, if I'm if if I'm not quite describing your views as perfectly as I should be, but but uh, a loving God who has to sort of just kind of influence, and there is a healthy tension there that I would love to see um, see Professor Ord and I sort of uh, dig through those those biblical images because they're both they both derive from scripture. I mean, Ord's ideas and process theology they're they're drawing from the well of scripture just Absolutely. as much as as I am. The thing is, is that the ideas, both in his book and also in my book, just are ideas in scripture that have really not been given a broad spotlight. So we right. don't have a lot of content. We don't have a lot of ideas engaging with them. And I'm very hopeful for the future, if nothing else, that my book and his books will be able to engage people to start having bigger conversations, uh, ha grow their vocabularies and ideas to an extent that gets us to a place where we can start having the kinds of conversations we should be having. Yeah. And one of the things I hope, hope so deeply this book does is that it puts to bed the idea of the debates we have about verbal inspiration. Yeah. So that we can just finally say, well, whether the Bible is verbally inspired or whether it's thought inspired or whether it's whatever inspired, it really doesn't matter because even if it was exactly like, you know, uh, Piper and the rest would hope for an exact word for word, you know, or thought for thought dictation of God's ideas, even if that was the case, it would still be the case that that same Bible says and tells the story <laughs> of how God wants people who would still say no to it yeah. if it violated God's character. So sure. what that reveals is that God is putting his heart foremost as the thing that we have to be after and to understand, and his words are actually subservient to his heart. So sure. if we're going to be judging things, we got to stop looking at the words and we got to start focusing on the heart. Wow. Yeah, straight up, man. So um, I think I have one more question that I want to ask you just for time's sake, uh, if you're cool with that, because I think mm -hmm. we could keep talking all day and do a four-hour episode. That would be awesome. But um, <laughs> you, so I want to just like like get an application point real quick. Um, so you have like the second half of your book, you, you list out a whole bunch of different things, uh, that you talk about. Um, and one of them that you talk about is divine violence. Um, and so basically I just wanted like, 
throw something out there and then I just want you to respond. So uh, to see what the difference is between what I lay out versus the kind of understanding that you would say and you know push forth with the, the understandings you present in your book. So typically uh, in the past for me, how I would talk about divine violence is I would uh, reject, say for example, Canaanite genocide, I would say no, that didn't happen because that doesn't match the character of God based off of the ultimate revelation of God, who is Christ Jesus. So Jesus reveals what God is like. You know, I mean, you know the argument. Uh, Jesus says all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm the exact, you know, imprint of God, um, whatever. So I would say, okay, well, Jesus would not command mass genocide. So God definitely did not do it in, you know, the Old Testament. Um, there's somehow uh, either God is allowing himself to be spoken about in this way, the Israelites are just talking like ancient Near Eastern people, etc. So like what, what would the similarities and or perhaps the differences be from your understanding specifically with um, divine violence uh, compared to the kind of argument that I just made? So yeah, so I think like in my book, you know, when I talk about the, the Canaanites, um, the, the biggest issue you have to kind of recognize is that, yes, you're right. If not because of, well, I mean, yes, exactly what you're saying, basically. Like, okay. if Jesus is who you take God to be, then you have to make the decision to be logically coherent. And that is that you can't both say that Jesus is a lamb at one time and a dragon at another time. <laughs> you, you're going to have to recognize that a character is not fundamentally altered and different, right? It may have to, because of context, take on new kind of ways of expressing itself, and certainly sometimes there is a place for tough love and so forth. But genocide is not tough love, right? Genocide is, <laughs> is a whole other level of violence and, and terror, and it's the kind of thing that we would immediately register in our minds with Satan. So what's interesting that I explore in the book is kind of comparing the book of Esther with the book of Joshua and recognizing that where although Esther has violence in it, it leaves God out. God is there, presumably, working behind the scenes, doing things, but the author does not want to attribute human actions to divine providence. Whereas mm. in Joshua, divine providence is behind every single thing that happens. Absolutely. Right? And so the question becomes, well, okay, is Esther actually the more historically accurate way of writing? And Joshua is an example of what happens when you start trying to interpret everything that's happening. Yeah. Right? And, and <laughs> what's interesting is that in the Greek translation of Esther in the Septuagint, um, editors actually did start adding God in everywhere in Esther because they were uncomfortable with not having an interpretation. So now God is behind everything that happens. God is blessing everything and all the violence. And, uh, and of course, where people are like, what do you mean all the violence? Oh, read the last three paragraphs. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> the part they leave out of every single movie adaptation. But um, the thing is, is that what this kind of potentially shows is that there is a very human element here at work in terms of how the Bible's adapted and, uh, and applied. The other thing that's really interesting, too, though, is understanding that although the Bible writers obviously interpret things as God actively doing them, right? Um, Babylon sacks Jerusalem. God actively sent Babylon over. Right, but yet at the same time, the Bible writers never claim that God like sent a dream to Nebuchadnezzar, or that God presumably told the Babylonians you need to go do this thing. Usually, the Bible writers even recognize that they don't know exactly how the events unfolded to eventually get Nebuchadnezzar involved in these things, but that somehow God 
definitely wasn't against what occurred. Well, okay, but here's the deal. You don't have to go down that road, right? (laughs) Jerusalem made terrible decisions for hundreds of years that (laughs) wreaked terrible consequences politically. Absolutely. Like, Like God didn't really, this is the point, God didn't have to do anything because Jerusalem already reaped the consequences that were coming. Now, maybe God could have spared them if they had repented, but then repentance wouldn't just be, please, God, forgive us. It would be, let's make active decisions to do the opposite of what we've been doing so we create reality, right? Turn around as what the word repent means. So I think one of the things you have to recognize here is that the Bible writers want to interpret things, and I think they have a habit of trying to understand God as actively making things happen when in reality, God is just letting them happen, Mm, right? We are more than likely the ones who reap our own problems. I mean, even in Proverbs, it constantly says that's what the wicked do. The wicked get all their punishments, not because God curses them, but because they create the problems that come to bite them later uh, because of their lack of vision. So I think that when we read scripture, we don't have to, you know, throw God out. We don't have to say God's not involved in these events. But we do have to find a way to understand his involvement in a way that respects his character, right? And I think we shouldn't be surprised that throughout scripture, different people have understood God's character to less or greater degrees. And we need to play that role as well in terms of understanding <laughs> that they are interpreting these things. Yeah. And we should engage their interpretations and we yeah. should come up with our own, but always with the guide of trying to, you know, show a better, uh, more uh, logical, certainly more beautiful vision of the God that Jesus came to show. Yeah, man. Absolutely. That's so good. And. <laughs> no, that's awesome, dude. Seriously. So, um, like to to be respectable to your time, and also, um, somebody keeps calling me. Uh, we should probably get ready and wrap things up. But I think, um, I don't know, man. I I mean, genuinely, I think that this book, uh, for what it's worth, is is super important as well. Um, I know it was super helpful for me. Um, it's going to be super helpful for listeners as well. So, uh, guys, thank you for listening and. Um, going out and, and pick up a copy of uh, Saying No to God. You can you know grab it on Amazon or Matthew if there's a better place you would rather people get it from. Um, wherever people want it, it's probably being sold there. So you, they can get it wherever they'd like. Yeah, sweet. That's awesome. <laughs> cool, dude. Well, also too, like real quick, just an aside. Um, are you familiar with a podcast called You Have Permission or a guy named Dan Koch? I am not actually. No, I'm not familiar with that podcast. All right, cool. I might put you in contact with Dan Koch because I think um, he'd be extremely interested in, in the things that you have to say. Dan's a cool dude. Um, okay, I'll so, take your endorsement. Yeah, Dan's awesome. Um, yeah, for what it's worth. So, sweet. All right, man. Well, thank you again so much. I know we could uh, continue. I personally, like on a selfish level, would love to just keep asking you questions because <laughs> I think everything you're saying is so helpful. Um, and I think one thing, too, that your book – uh, it did for me was you helped put um, language to things that I felt uh, maybe in my bones, if that makes sense, or like helped helped me think through it, things that I felt to be true or something like that. Like yeah. based off my experience of God and like 
my, you know, my personal experience, my relationship with God, which I know some, you know, more conservative people get antsy when you use the word experience, but how the hell else are we supposed to relate to God? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like relationship is experiential inherently. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. We are created to be in relationship. That's an experience. We should trust our experience with God. Um, so it, I don't know. It was just super helpful. So thank you so much for, uh, for writing this, for putting it out there. I think it's a super helpful contribution. I really hope that um, these got, you know these kind of ideas uh, continue to catch on and these kind of conversations keep happening, uh, which is really what we want to do here uh, at Rethinking Faith. So thank you for contributing to that. Thank you for helping us uh, all rethink our faith, rethink our understanding of Scripture, of who God is, and um, all that great stuff. And man, I wish you the best of luck in you know as you continue your studies and um, strive for that fancy phd (laughs) that'll be cool and uh yeah man sweet just thank you so much for your time thank you so much josh for uh, having me on it's been a pleasure and a blessing and uh if you ever want to have me on again for any reason i'd love to talk with you because honestly you're a great conversation partner and your show is obviously serving a very good role to help more conversations with a lot more people and a larger audience so I hope and wish for the best for your show and that uh, a lot more people uh, join this large conversation that Christianity really needs to keep having grow. Mm, Absolutely, man. Well, yeah, we'd love to have you and hopefully uh, we could have you with Marty uh, because what's kind of cool, Marty and I are kind of different in our, you know, theology and stuff. I definitely tend to be a bit more progressive in my thinking than Marty is, um, but I know he would love, he would like have loved to be a part of this conversation. So uh, maybe next time we can have Marty involved as well. Uh, but for now, I always do this thing where I have to sign off talking about the best hockey team. So I always right. thank everybody. So I go like, oh, hey, guys, you know, thank you so much for listening. And uh, by the way, go Caps. 